This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the sacred collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Hello. Um, so my name's Brandon, and uh, Maria asked me to MC, and I don't know any of you except for like one person who I'm married to and another person. Um, and I don't even know Maria that well. Like, she has no idea what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm a psychopath. And um, I'm actually a preacher of purity. So I brought, like, the roses with the petals. And, yeah, I'm like, we're going to sign abstinence pledges, basically. Um, so, uh, truthfully, though, I did used to be a pastor. I know it's really sad to say. Um, but now I'm a bartender and a barista. And, yeah, and I... I do this in my free time, so you know the despair runs deep. Um, And I assume all of you are depressed because it's February in Minnesota, and you're here talking about purity culture, which is terrible. So um, I'm I'm really excited, and I'm glad you all got out of bed for this. Uh, So uh, before we get into the topic of the evening, a few housekeeping things. Uh, Thank you to Corner Coffee for letting us use this space. And oh, oh. And also thank you to our sponsors, Post-Christian Podcasting and the Sacred Collective. They're here tonight recording, doing a bunch of fun things with this material. Um, Also, the cocktail of the evening, which Maria gave me the name of the cocktail, but wouldn't tell me how to pronounce it. So it's Dormir Avec Kalukuam. Actually, what I did was um, I gave you that name of the cocktail, the name of the cocktail you all are drinking, it's called the Very Sexy Cocktail. I just did this to watch you squirm on okay. <laughs> Love it, love it, love it. So yeah, the name she gave me was French, and I took French in high school to impress girls, and nobody has ever been impressed by it, because I never learned how to speak it. So um, Andy Ray, who's our bartender for the evening, um, it's, she's doing a great job. Thank you. Please do drink up. Um, I think your ticket includes like one drink and then there's a suggested donation for the second drink. Um, I will say I was expecting like a sex before marriage on the beach, but I don't know. That's just me. Uh, and that's why I don't get asked to design drinks. So, um, Maria gave me maybe too much creative license with this. She was like, will you like kind of open it up and like make it light, share some like funny purity culture stories um, but then as I was like asking my friends for purity culture stories, I was like, oh, they're not funny. They're just really sad. Like there's nothing, you know, it's, they are funny, but you're crying at the end. So, um, the only one that I was like, okay, this is kind of funny is last night I was talking to my brother-in-law and he reminded me that in our youth group in the great town of Elk River, Minnesota, where we went to evangelical youth group, the youth pastor on the night where they split up the boys and the girls talked to us boys and the youth pastor and some male leaders talked to us about how, you know, don't have sex before marriage and all that stuff. And also, like, when you do get married, sex is going to be, and I quote, an all-you-can-eat buffet. So um, I think this is, you know, it fits in among all the fucked up. Are we allowed to swear? Okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. So this fits in among the fucked up, like, metaphors for sex and purity culture. Um, But I think it's, like, particularly bad. But also, I kind of wish, like, secretly that it would have taken off because I can imagine, like, the testimonies of, like, we're in a Christian marriage and we eat Golden Corral every night. So, I don't know. I think there's something that we could make money there. Um, 
but yeah, basically, I, there, there's a serious reason that um, I wanted to participate in this event. Um, and it's basically that I grew up with purity culture. And um, I remember, you know, we did, like, the whole thing. Like, purity rings, abstinence, pledges. We got married at, like, 15. We've been married for 25 years, my wife and I, but we're only 26. Um, and... We did all that stuff, and I remember there was, like, a specific time after we had been married for a little while where we were talking one time in the car, and it was like it both kind of hit us that we were like, nobody we know that's older than us or is the same age as us or anybody. Like, we, there's, like, not a single person that I, like, look up to for, like, relationships or sexuality or anything like that. There's not a single, like, teacher or any, anything like that. And it just kind of, like, hit both of us at the same time that we're, like, we're on this, like, pathless journey that, you know, of course, we had been taught that there was this path and everything, but it, it's not real. So it was sort of at that moment that I realized, like, I think I sort of, like, internalized the truth that this is going to be, like, a long self-constructive journey. And I just think, like, we got really lucky, although not sexually, because that's sin, um, but we got really lucky uh, in that, like, we were deconstructing our faith at the same time and, like, going through a lot of this stuff. And had a bunch of really cool friends to, like, talk about it with and process it with, but not everybody gets that opportunity. So I think these sort of public spaces where that can happen are really important things uh, for people to have. So this is a really great opportunity that uh, Maria is kind of organizing for us. And, um, yeah, we're each tasked with this project of our own sexuality, and I think it's a good project to participate in in these forums. Um, so in doing this, we're going to start with some music to get us in the mood. It's sex music, right? Yeah. But, okay, yeah. So we're going to start with some music um, from Andriana Joy Lair. And Andriana is coming off a three-year hiatus during her transition into matrescence. Matrescence. Okay, I had to look it up. Yeah, it's like adolescence, but you become a mother, right? Yeah, I love it. Um, Singer-songwriter... Andriana Lair is slowly making a return to performance life. Now the proud mother of two young sons, she's found a new perspective on life, love, loss, and the intolerable impermanence of it all. With a diverse repertoire of original songs that span the spectrum from dark to light, serious to saucy, there's a little something for everyone. Regardless of tone, Lair maintains an undercurrent of persistent existential exploration of the inimitable experience of human life. Andriana, welcome. Thank you. If I would have known that bio was going to be read out loud, I might have phrased things a little bit differently. I gave you a little, little bit of a mouthful there. Um, thank you, Maria, for inviting me out tonight. Um, and I'm going to do a few new tunes for you. I was born under a winter sun A cold December night A surprise to everyone Came out screaming in a panicked fuss With fire in my heart Classic Sagittarius 
serious And I guess this explains a lot Guess this explains a lot about me. Grew up lonely on a quiet street. I never quite fit in. Always kept mostly to me. Dreamt of flying past the thunderclouds, out singing to the stars where the rain came pouring down. Oh, I guess this explains a lot. I guess this explains a lot about me. Made the most out of my awkward years, for better or for worse, never giving. I came close to death a hundred times That self-destructive phase Darkness made way for the light And I guess this explains a lot I guess this explains a lot To run away or please everybody I might meet along the way Sometimes it's just too much To be trapped in the clutches of this existential I'm taking a bit of a risk here. Um, I'm playing all new songs, these first three songs. I'm uh, participating in a songwriting challenge this year. So the goal is to write a song a week. And in this group, you're given a, a word or a phrase to write a song. Um, and then you either record it on YouTube or upload an audio version on SoundCloud or the two main platforms that people use for this. And then there's a group, and we just kind of all 
get together online and listen to each other's songs. So it's really interesting to see the variety that comes out of these prompts. Um, but anyway, so that last one was actually the first time I've played it. Uh, that was this last week's song. And the prompt for that was This Explains a Lot. And then this one was Kings and Queens. So this was, I think, the second week. And I think this is the video that Maria found me with uh, via Instagram. So I'm going to do this one for you. The kings and queens are taking their leave And they continents on fire The empires burn as the world it turns Steady on to its funeral pyre Deeper the pain 
But to see it we must endure Let to see it we must endure Let to see it we This was, I think, last week's song. So you can probably hear a lot of what I write is very influenced by current events and existential crises of a perpetual nature. And this is no different. So uh, thank you for being here and listening. It's that everyone is doing their best to get by There's no rules, just risk When the deck is stacked against anyone without means To buy a better seat At the table At the table At the table No one likes to admit They've been duped, made the fool for their entire life But one can hardly blame Cause we all just want the same To be fed, housed, and safe It's not quite common sense either Nothing separate, not me Not you, not the rivers, the lakes, or the streams Or the trees The trees Seems seduced by the ego into disharmony. We 
must tread carefully. Our survival is fickle in the grand scheme of things. Thank you. Okay, so next we have some poetry, which is near and dear to my heart because I also write poetry, only I do it badly, I think. Um, but this next person, his name is uh, Christopher Fletcher, and Chris is an artistic anthropologist curating the human condition through poetry and photography, bearing witness to humanity through his experiences. A deep and authentic thinker with bottomless curiosity, a romantic, mysterious, intellectual explorer of liminal spaces, often on the outskirts of the status quo, searching for glimpses, whispers, and shouts, yearning to find meeting. Chris is an awesome guy. Welcome him to the stage. Do you need a drink? Uh, no. Are you sure? <laughs> That's unusual for me to say. It is. Sure, you can bring me a drink. I would. Will I figure this out? Is it green? How's that? Try it. Oh, now I got it. <laughs> now I see. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back again for the second time at Corner Coffee for an event here with all of you. Thank you for the music and the MC and our drinks, and our bartender. I'm going to uh, do a few poems this evening that I wrote. Um, I think that it's interesting that our topic this evening, I grew up in a very fundamentalist church as well a long time ago. Went to their college in East Texas, and I'd probably get kicked out for reading any of these poems now. <laughs> so it's an interesting journey from then to now. Uh, I really think there's a spectrum between loneliness and sex somehow. So a lot of these poems were a time when I bartended at a bar in Two Harbors and I lived upstairs and I got to see a lot of lonely people who didn't want to go home alone a lot of the time because they're lonely. I actually suggested one time that we should put a big whiteboard up on the wall and then when you come into the bar there's magnets all the names of the usuals that come into the bar every night. And then if you want to go home with somebody, all you got to do is take your magnet and put it by their magnet. Then you have all evening to move the magnets around. And then at the end of the night, you don't have to worry about it because it's just done. It just takes the stress out of the situation. But we never did that. But that was a, that was a suggestion for the bar, which would have never happened at the university I went to in East Texas. Well, it did happen, except nobody talked about it. That was the thing. <laughs> It was like, don't ask, don't tell, but it was going on, and people were getting pregnant and going home and getting kicked out. But All right. All right, I'd like to invite all of you to a place not too far away, a small one-bedroom apartment dimly lit by candlelight, an open bottle of Beaujolais and a Leonard Cohen record playing quietly. While you're sitting alone looking out the window as the snow is falling and you wonder how you got to this place in your life, who, who out there would ever want to hear your story, share your bed, or find comfort in your arms? 
a writer named Kent Anon wrote this. A crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. When you seriously question whether what you believe, how you see, what you're committed to is actually true, is a good thing. It's not pleasant. It hurts. The ground goes wobbly. You may be reaching for sleeping pills or alcohol or a lover to get you from 2 to 4.30 each morning. And those thoughts are reflected, I think, in some of the poetry I wrote during this time. This poem's called That Year. He took lovers that year, like brilliant novels, reading partway through without finishing. Before starting with the next, he wanted nothing but a new page to turn until he forgot what he was reading. Second one is called Riddles. She desired a poem, a portrait of a man who could have sex with her soul while tasting her thoughts. As she read books to him wearing only the breeze, a man who could unravel riddles with his tongue as he watched her words turn into moans, she desired a poem. There were some words I was going to say tonight, but Maria banned me. I feel like I'm a George Carlin of the seven words you, seven words you can't say at Maria's sex event. <laughs> purity, <laughs> purity culture event. See, that's why I'm here. I say things you don't expect. I'm not even drinking. Any of you watched Californication when it was on? Yeah? You remember what Hank Moody said? This totally reminded me of some nights. A morning of awkwardness is far better than a night of loneliness. Remember Hank Moody? You're the, is she the only one that watched Californication? Oh, we got Bill watched it. Cool. Okay, this is a poem called Waif. Narrow hips, small breasts, the waif walked into the bar, ordered a tequila without training wheels, sat down and shot it, turned to me and asked, who the hell are you? I replied, no one, as I winked and whispered, your eyes have smitten me. She snickered and said, I thought it was my ass. Whatever it is, buy me a drink. Sure, for now it's gin and tomorrow is already here. Fuck tomorrow and maybe you later, she yelled for the whole bar to hear over the din. Okay, I said. Blowjobs are like fist bumps now. Let's drink to that. Leonard Cohen wrote in one of his poems, My reputation as a ladies' man was a joke. They caused me to laugh bitterly through the 10,000 nights I spent alone. This poem's called Inconvenience. Sex dripping from bathroom walls, gin-stained hearts, smoke-filled dreams. You start out ragged and end up halfway distinguished, smelling like a second-hand store, wearing ripped black nylons, smoking lucky strikes, looking across the bar for inconvenience, to wash loneliness away for the night, pouring pain out of a low ball into an empty stair. Another one of my favorite poets, this 
sprinkle a few things in here, like Leonard Cohen, and this one's by Charles Bukowski. Short thing he commented on with relationships. He said, I'll remember your small room, the feel of you, the light in the window, your records, your books, our morning coffee, our noons, our nights, our bodies spilled together, sleeping, the tiny flowing currents, immediate and forever, your leg, my leg, your arm, my arm, your smile and the warmth of you who made me laugh again. This one's called My Lover. Perfume and passion, naked poetry on blank sheets of desire, as love falls like mist on skin, while the morning light awakes, rising over entangled bodies, wrapped in magic, spellbound in love, worn by words, fragrance, and desire. O lover, how long ago was forever before the day you walked in the door as yesterday faded beyond the horizon. I have one more to share with you, and then it'll be time for Maria to come and share her thoughts with us. This one's called I Love You. I love you with candlelight, soft music and wine, tender kisses, sighs beneath the weight of the world, six degrees away from eternity, lift me up to your eyes, erase yesterday with your smile, curl up next to me against the night until daylight, refreshed in your presence, an angel singing, turning tears into warm spring rain, resurrecting love, excavating hope, the blooming of forever. I love you. Thank you, everybody. And uh, turn it back over to our MC. Thank you, Chris. Um, okay, so Maria's going to come talk to us about some really exciting stuff. Uh, but she told me that she wouldn't need much of an introduction because she would know a lot of you. But she was like, you could just like tell a story about how we met and your impression of me. So... Um, my impression of Maria was, so we met in Northern Ireland. I, and we were both at this event called Wake with our mutual friend, Peter Rollins, who's this like philosopher dude. And Belfast is like a goth paradise. It's like, you know, raining all the time, dark imagery everywhere. And we're walking down these cobblestone roads and I see Maria in this like crazy, like bright outfit. And she's like live streaming to her Instagram followers. And I was like, who is this influencer? I need to meet her. And so I naturally I thought she was selling essential oils. So I, you know, went and talked with her and I found out it was way worse. She was selling God. Um, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, she turns out she's this really cool person who like likes to curate these spaces that are about talking about God and post-theism and recovering evangelicals and things like that. So really appreciate her for putting this together and welcome Maria French. Thank you, Brandon, for that. And just to be clear, I was absolutely not selling essential oils or anything of any kind of multi-level anything. <laughs> um, first, I want to say thank you so much to everybody who's here, who came out tonight, who bought a ticket and made space in their week and their Sunday night when you could be at some Oscars party somewhere. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our Zoom people who are Zooming in from wherever you are. Uh, appreciate you 
joining us via live stream. We have not forgotten about you. We're thinking of you, and we're thankful you're here with us via the interwebs. So this is a super important conversation. And as most of you know, I have a lot of conversations around post-evangelical thought and what it looks like to sort of recover from traditional frameworks of Christianity, most notably conservative Christianity. But I don't often talk about sexual ethics. Um, you know, it's gotten a lot of press in the last couple years. Uh, there have been some books written about um, women coming out of purity cults and some of the trauma they've experienced and just really opening up the conversation. And this is something that I've been thinking about for years now. And I thought, you know, I think it's time to join the conversation and open it up and invite some others into it. It's funny. I, uh, I live in Southern California and I'm probably one of the only crazy people in the whole world who migrates from Newport Beach to Minneapolis in February um, as you can see, I wasn't willing to compromise my choice of shoe wear this evening, but I did wear my snow boots out. That was fun. Um, but I recently moved apartments, and when you move apartments, you have to go through all of your boxes and what's in storage and blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling you, I, I could not believe what I found. Do you want to know what I found? I found my True Love Waits card. <laughs> I know. From February 1999. And I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I had still kept this thing around. And it's this little yellow card. It's signed Maria Esposito because that was my maiden name, and I'm a happy divorcee at this point, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but there it was. And I couldn't believe that it had shown up and that I had kept it all these years. And I remember when I first signed it, I was... 16 years old, and I was smack dab in the middle of a megachurch on Long Island, charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical. And um, it was the biggest youth group going on Long Island at that time. And we were in a really big auditorium. And our youth pastor had just started like a six-month-long campaign on true love weights and abstinence and dating God's way and, you know, all of that. And I remember at the time, I had just started dating my first boyfriend ever. We're going to call him Joe, because his name was Joe. Um, <laughs> we're going to leave his very Italian last name out of this. Um, we were both very Italian at the time. Um, and I remember when we had started dating, I was just on cloud nine, because he was the guy that all the women wanted to date, and he was the guy that all the men wanted to be like. And here I was, this guy's girlfriend. And we went on for two years. Um, but I remember being in this big auditorium and everyone knew that Maria had just started dating Joe. And I was so, like, proud and so, like, look how amazing I am for dating this guy. And I was like, I'm going to go up and I'm going to be the first one to sign this pledge, this card or whatever. And I was. I got up out of my seat. I walked down the aisle in true kind of altar call fashion. I grabbed my card and I signed it. And I didn't feel a whole lot of pressure because at that point, I was kind of thinking I wouldn't have sex till I was married anyway. Um, Joe and I went on for a two-year non-sex-filled relationship. Um, it was six months before we even had our first French kiss. Do you know how much making out you can do without tongue? A lot. <laughs> You can do a lot of kissing without a tongue involved. I, I know, I can tell you that. And the funny thing is, after our French kiss, 
experience, our first one. Um, as you know, if you've been part of purity culture, you know that parents are involved. There's all kinds of transparency. There's all kinds of accountability. You tell everyone what you're doing and what you're not doing and blah, blah, blah. So, of course, like my great Italian man of a boyfriend told his mommy and uh, blamed it on me. But, hey, I, I don't harbor any bitterness there. Um, I remember for weeks and for days after that very first tongue kiss, uh, I thought to myself, did I make a mistake? Had I disappointed God? Do I need to tell my youth pastor that I've done this? Now, I don't think any of us here are in that place anymore, I'm sure, or if you ever were. We've been long gone. That was 1999. I was 16. I just turned 37 this week. Um, but I bet we can all remember these deep feelings of shame and guilt uh, that come with being a part of purity cults and purity culture. If you were part of it, you probably remember phrases like, don't awaken love before it's time. That's a favorite of mine. Uh, Guard your heart. Um, You know, all of the promises of how amazing sex would be if you just waited till you were married to have it. The constant fear of being damaged goods if you messed up, quote unquote. I could go on with this sort of triggering language. And all of this is assuming a heterosexual relationship because same-sex sex wasn't even on the scale of imagination a part of purity culture. So again, we're just talking in terms of heterosexual relationships here. And then, of course, came the shame, if you remember, about masturbation, and mostly for men because it was assumed that women didn't have the same sexual needs or desires or urges or wants as men. Then there was the pornography conversation, also always directed towards men. There was zero imagination for ethical porn or ethical sex work. And all of this is really, as you know, just the tip of the iceberg in purity culture. Fast forward several years. So we started when I was 16. We're moving to when I was 24, 2007. Somehow I had made it to marriage as a virgin. I had kept my commitment. And not because I was super passionate about purity at that moment, but mostly because, because I was going through a lot of changes. There, at that point, I was moving through some faith stages. I had just started seminary. I was thinking about things differently. I was asking new questions. So it wasn't so much that I valued purity at that point, sexual purity. It was more of like, well, I waited this long, so I might as well just wait a little longer. Seven years later, seven years after that, I found myself divorced and happily so, but also in a place that I never thought I would be, in which this conversation for me came up again, and that was single. Uh, And I knew I had some sort of decisions to make. I wasn't really interested in figuring out uh, or deciding whether I ever wanted to be married again. Didn't really seem like an attractive proposition to me at that point. Um, I was thinking, well, maybe long-term monogamy, maybe long-term committed partnerships, maybe even cohabitating, but I don't know about marriage. And if I don't know about marriage, then how can I know about sex inside or outside of marriage? And I thought to myself, well, sexuality is one of those things that I want to take super seriously. 
And now that I'm kind of a free agent, I don't want to just like run around abusing my sexuality and having sex with whatever and whoever, although that's okay if that's what you decide. But for me, I wanted to develop some kind of ethic, some kind of like measuring rod for how I was going to engage my own sexuality and uh, with, with a sense of integrity, with a sense of thoughtfulness in a way that um, I didn't feel compromised what my values were when it came to sex and sexuality. And I didn't know what my values were, and I wanted to go on a journey of figuring that out. So I did. I actually started to do a lot of study culturally, historically, and biblically, because if we're claiming Christianity, we have to kind of, you know, engage the Bible on some of this stuff. I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end. Um, But I really started to consider some of this really heavily before any of these books really came out. Um, And this conversation was really brought to the fore. And again, I think we're just kind of at the beginning. I remember telling a few friends and close family members that um, I wanted to be thoughtful about my next steps in terms of my sexual choices as a Christian, as someone claiming to still follow Christ. And I remember the evangelical answers kind of thrown at me sounded something like, well, Maria, you know, sex is the most beautiful in marriage. And I was like, all right, game over, conversation over. (laughs) I learned my lesson too many times. So Victoria Brooks just came out with this new book called Fucking Law. It's very fascinating read. It's very cool. Um, It's amazing. It is insightful. And it's unabashedly raw and actually quite erotic. It's a short little read. It's like 110 pages. I do recommend it, but I do want to throw out the uh, disclaimer that it, it, it is erotic as well if you're going to read it. And one of her reviewers said, it is written by a body and not a mind. And it's so interesting because what she's trying to get at, so all of her chapters start with fucking. And the first two chapters are entitled Fucking Philosophy and Fucking Ethics. Now, the interesting thing, the premise of this book, the fucking here is actually twofold. Because Brooks, on one hand, is saying philosophy needs to be fucked. Do you know why it needs to be fucked? It needs to be decimated to the ground, and it needs to be just completely blown up. Because sexual ethics and philosophy and this kind of law about the body is done by thinkers in a patriarchal tradition, in a philosophical tradition that thinks cerebrally about these things and not consider sexuality as an embodied experience, which it absolutely is. So in one sense, she's saying philosophy just needs to be fucked. But on the other hand, she's saying, actually, philosophy just needs a really good fucking because you can't actually make a decision, an ethical decision about fucking unless you're fucking. It's a really interesting question that she poses and one that I'm still thinking about, one that I thought would be interesting to share with you. The entire premise of the book, however, is kindness, or as Brooks would say, fucking kindness. That vivid kindness protects our desires against abuse when we move forward with an ethic of kindness in anything, not least of which sexuality. And I would say that purity culture lacks just that. It lacks kindness. It lacks fucking kindness to the max. It accosts and it assaults our desires and it ultimately abuses them. And I think 
as I was reading this book, especially these first two chapters, I thought to myself, this is exactly what purity culture needs. This is exactly what purity culture needs to hear. Purity culture needs to be fucked over. It needs to be decimated. But perhaps it also just needs a really good fucking. Because sexuality is embodied. And how do you make, again, ethical decisions about fucking, Brooks would say, without actually fucking? Brooks talks about how there are ethical challenges to be made at each point of traversal as we are in our search for sexual ethics. Because she's not trying to say that she's figured it out. The whole premise is the search for it. Because life is dynamic. And our desires and our sexuality, it's all dynamic. It's all ever-changing. And so we keep traversing while our ethic is being developed and enacted upon. More on Brooks' thesis in a moment. So I think, <laughs> maybe you would all agree with me, we'll see. Um, I think one of the worst things about purity culture is that it is perpetuated by people who haven't the slightest idea, really, of what they're talking about. I don't know if you all know a comedian turned author, still comedian. His name's Pete Holmes. And he has this book, Sex God. Any, any of you heard, it, heard of it? I brought it with me because I'm going to quote it here. Um, but he talks in his book about the time that he went up to a youth worker at his church and asked if masturbating was the same thing as having sex. Because him and his friends are trying to figure out, like, hey, we've got to maintain our virginity. And, you know, it's not about how far we can go, but how little we can do, and blah, 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 blah. And this is the, the small little story he, he recounts. Stick with me while I read a few paragraphs to you. I think you'll like it. I was nominated to ask the question, as I was the only one in our group with enough courage to say the word masturbated to a youth worker. I still vividly remember where I was standing looking down at my white sneakers, sharply contrasted against the gray carpet, my voice shaky. I can see the look on church volunteer John's face. And I remember after I asked, he had to think about it. I was really, really hoping for a quick yes, like, what are you talking about? Get out of here, yes. But there I was, waiting for news, and it didn't look good. This is it, I thought. He's about to tell me I'm going to hell for thinking about my Spanish teacher in a thong. <laughs> After his cavernous pause, John cleared his throat, looked at me, and said, Well, technically, yes. Fuck, I thought to myself. This pretty much meant I was no longer a virgin, technically. It was not the answer I was looking for. Sex was the worst thing you could do. The most definite no-no there was. The greatest risk of sending your soul to hell. And I was finding out casually on a Sunday morning that I had been as far as God was concerned, committing myself to the flames two to three times a day. John was probably well-meaning, and he most likely jerked off all the time and felt really bad about it too. So I'm surprised how angry I still am at this guy. But this is what happens when unpaid adults sign up to help with Sunday school. Up the street, people were literally protesting at my high school because some of the teachers didn't have master's degrees. 
Yet all the while, the mysteries of existence and the complexities of spiritual ethics were being taught to children by guilt-ridden volunteers, and no one gave a shit. That's pretty damn accurate, if you ask me. And while we're on the subject of masturbation, a quick note about it. Persons who have never masturbated are more likely to experience sexual dysfunction in their sexual relationships in general, period. I'm just going to leave that there. So where do we even start with developing a new sexual ethic, Christian or otherwise, that does justice to the human experience, to the human condition, as well as give our sexuality the respect that it really deserves? So I often, for those of you who know me personally, you know that I like live my life on Instagram. I love Instagram. I have so much fun with it. And I often will throw out questions and stickers. And when I do events like these, I always do stories and try and promote them and see where people are at. And I recently threw out a question about uh, what people think about kind of the Christian purity culture, sexual ethic conversation. You know, what what are some of their thoughts? And I had uh, several people respond. Um... And one of the questions came in, asked this. Does a healthy Christian sexual ethic exist? And here was my answer. To be honest, I'm not sure that it exists. And we are just at the beginning of a big collective conversation about it. It's only been the last few years that people have started to publicly speak out against purity culture. But is there a way forward past rebuke? I'm unsure. I do know I would like to be a part of that conversation because when we claim Christianity, we have a responsibility to a Christian ethic. So what's the narrative of that ethic? Kindness, respect, putting the other first, radical hospitality. What if we brought these values into our discussion about sexual ethics? What if we brought these values into our discussions about sex, period, whether it's simply engaging our sexual selves or with others? What if we brought these kinds of values into our bed? Christian Gudoff, in her book, Body, Sex, and Pleasure, says this about reconstructing sexual ethics. The Christian tradition on sexuality has centered on individual sexual acts, specifically on sexual acts regarded as sinful and consequently has failed to reflect on the meaning of sexuality itself and its relevatory meaning for humans. And she goes on to say that even though it seems that people are thinking more liberally about this stuff in terms of maybe what sexual acts are ethical versus deviant, blah, 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 that they're still so tied. Ethicists, even more liberal sexual ethicists, are still really finding it difficult to break free from an act-centered ethic. The ethic really needs to start from a framework of qualitative nature the framework of a qualitative nature of the relationship in which the act occurs, the motives emerging from the relationship or the consequences of the act on persons or lack thereof, which determine the morality of the act, Gudorf says. In other words, it's the context 
that determines the ethic of the act. It's the two people, or perhaps one person, or more than two people, whatever you want to say, it is the people involved in the act, and the context and the social location of it, the mutuality of the act, the community that is being shared within the act, that is what makes it ethical or not. She goes on to talk about sexual moral minimalism, essentially referencing purity culture, in which she says there is no guidance, there is no opportunity for reflection or construction or building or social growth. If we made up our list of sexual sins and we did so from a relational standpoint, our lists would be very different. For instance, if we're talking about ethics in terms of mutuality and community within sexuality, what if we added things like marital, marital rape to that list? Because that's at 14% for women in our country today. And that is only those who are being reported. Sexual harassment for women in the workplace is staggeringly high. Child molestation, child incest, and all forms of sexual violence. So, back to Victoria Brooks and fucking kindness. Because this is sort of what she's trying to say. This is sort of what she's trying to get at. She urges the suspicion of philosophy because she says that these judgments are underpinned. These judgments are being underpinned and decided. These ethics are being curated by someone else's orgasms. Why would it be helpful to you? Purity culture is being decided by someone else's sexual experience or lack thereof. Purity culture ethics is being decided by someone's very anemic and misconstrued hermeneutic and interpretation of whatever they think scripture is saying. Why would it be helpful to you? Why would it be helpful to us? She says, think, but think with your fucking body when and where your body comes, and what this says about what and who you need in your life. And the very last line of her book says this, whatever you do, whoever you do, when you do it or where, be kind. And therein lies the problem with purity cults. No kindness no fucking kindness. I think as I start to wrap up my thoughts here, I want to say a word about power, culture, and the Bible when it comes to sexual ethics. Not a tall order. I can do that like this. It's no problem. Um, So in terms of power, always remember this. The ones telling the story control the plot. And they control the plot for a reason. Take a close look at the ones who are making the rules in this game. Take a critical look and try and figure out what advantages and what privilege are afforded them by perpetuating things like purity culture or whatever brand of sexual ethic that they're about. In terms of culture, I'll say this. You know that we have the Victorians to thank for this, don't you? <laughs> you know that purity culture is really all their fault. 
before the 17th century, um, sexual practices had very little need for secrecy. Everybody was very frank and out there with their sexual selves. But with the rise of the Victorian bourgeoisie, sexuality became the super confined and redefined thing, and silence was the name of the game. Sex was something that was very hush-hush and only happened between a husband and a wife in the privacy of their own bedroom and really only with the utilitarian... Um, the utilitarian... Uh, what, what word am I looking for? Thank you. The utilitarian purpose of having children uh, and, and procreating. Um, and this is something that they did indiscreetly. Um, nope, discreetly. Thank you. Uh, in the privacy of their own homes and their own beds, and it wasn't talked about ever. This was the start of a major era of sexual repression that somehow, as you can see, we have still not outlived, really, at all. And the Victorians said that if sex wasn't engaged in this certain way, then it was deviant, and it was illicit, and you were outside of the fold of normal society. We have names for people like you, and we have places for people like you. It was either hysteria, or prostitutes, or a mental institution, or whatever. But it was this kind of economy, a sexual economy, really, um, that created this very binary category, uh, or categories of sex and sexuality, which ultimately kept certain people in power, and certain groups disenfranchised. And finally, in terms of the biblical text, here's the thing. If you're a humanist and you want to talk about sexual ethics, I'm totally cool with that, and we can do that all day long. But I think most of us here, as progressive as we may be, and I claim post-Christian and post-church and post-God for myself all the time because I certainly am post all of those very traditional notions, but I am still claiming to work out of a New Testament narrative framework. And if I'm claiming that, and I'm still claiming a God consciousness and a Christ consciousness, is my due diligence and is my responsibility and my obligation to engage Scripture on these matters as well. And so I don't think, I know I don't, not that I don't think, I absolutely do not have the time here tonight that I would need to talk well and in-depthly about some of what I think Paul is doing when it comes to some of his writings on sex in the New Testament. However, if I could whet your appetites just a little bit for your own study when it comes to some of this stuff, I would encourage you to look deeply at the contexts and the social locations in which he is writing some of this stuff in. Most specifically in his letter to the Corinthians that people love to use when, when moralizing sexuality. Paul ultimately rejects desire, and he does so to fly in the face of his contemporary cults and pagan religions and philosophers such as asceticism, and he speaks counterculturally to it. And he places sex within marriage only because he believed, as his contemporary counterparts, the Stoics, did, that marriage basically killed desire. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but really, for Paul and his contemporaries, desire was the problem. So to squelch desire, be married. So ultimately, women were, were seen 
as receptacles of said desire, which is another lecture in and of itself, which is why um, biblical texts like Ephesians 5 is actually super radical. It's not radical for us because we're so far past that kind of treatment of women, Um, but it was radical for that day that Paul would say, hey, um, husbands, you actually have to respect your wives. We look at it now, we're like, well, duh, you respect your wives, but he's talking to this kind of culture here. And when he talks about burning in terms of it's better to marry than to burn with passion, this is language that held really heavy implications for the philosophy and contemporary religions of that day that Paul was writing in the middle of. And so we tread lightly on some of this stuff because we just don't know fully what he was trying to engage and what he was talking about. This is some of our best guess. But what we don't do is we don't build ideologies of sexual morality on it for the 21st century. That's an inappropriate response. That's disrespecting the text, and it's disrespecting our faith communities. So in any case, I hope that this has given you all something to think about tonight, and if nothing else, maybe released you from a few demons of your own past. And I would encourage you that when you're moving forward in your own sexual ethic, and I'm sure that we're all always moving forward in a sexual ethic, it's dynamic, we're all trying to figure it out all the time, it's always changing, that we would keep kindness at the center, that we would keep fucking kindness at the center, and that we would always move forward with a respect for the other, a sense of hospitality, the Christian implication of self-sacrifice, and dying a little bit so that someone else can live. Um, If you want to be a better lover, that really comes in handy, that kind of philosophy in in bed, just an FYI. (laughs) Anyway, um, Chris has done me the great favor, as he did last time, of writing a poem in real time as I've been talking and uh, whatever he felt inspired to write, he's going to read now. I'm so thankful for that. And then after, if Adriana feels like singing another song, we will close out with her. Chris, do you want to come up? You said one of the words I wasn't supposed to say. I tried to look at you, but you wouldn't look at me when you said it. <clears throat> and it wasn't fuck. That wasn't the word. We weren't allowed to say it. Okay, this is what I wrote. Actually, i got to tell a story first, okay? I was part of this Baptist church for a while. I have two daughters. One's 27 and one's 25 now. I also have a son who's 17. But while my daughters were teenagers and we were part of this church, they always had these father-daughter balls, which I always thought was kind of creepy and weird. But we participated. But what I always wanted to do, this kind of tells you my, how my brain works. I wanted to go to the father-daughter ball at First Baptist Church in Two Harbors, but I wanted to bring two strippers with me. And pretend they were my daughters for the evening. <laughs> just to mess with their minds. <laughs> I haven't done that yet. Maybe I still will in the future. But I just like disrupting things like that because the whole thing made no sense to me. But you do something out of the ordinary and just to mess, cause disruption. Hopefully for good. Okay, this is what I wrote. After our shared stories, purity passed, yearning for connection... After the lies our pastors and parents told us, fear of desire, virgin tears on pillows, embodied sexual ethics, inside, outside, beyond marriage and labels. 
Like, like Springsteen said, nuns run bald through Vatican halls, pregnant, pleading immaculate conception, fucking the mind while the body remains untouched, desire dripping, kindness, fucking, masturbating, ethical orgasms, sinful acts without context, without relationship. What about fucking judgment by others? Use your body when you do it. Tell, experience, taste, feel your sex stories, outside power constructs, countercultural bodies, dancing truth to power. That's all I got. All right, we'll hear one more song. Yes? All right. Thanks again for having me for one more song, and uh, what, what a great, great talk and things to think about. Um, I was not raised um, evangelical. I was raised as a good um, back of the church, back pew Lutheran in South Dakota. So we have our own forms of sexual shame and repression that just pretty much involves just don't talk about anything. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to kind of compare and contrast experiences, but... This is a song, hopefully, to leave you all on a lighter, more encouraging note of whatever your, whatever your personal truth is in this process, to just be true to that. So, thank you so much. Your tears are far away and just start living. We'll be brave as the tears fall down your face. Let the past get washed away and wrongs forgiven. We'll be brave. Be brave. strong do what's right and not what's wrong when you feel you don't belong or indecision will be strong no one can take away your song or change the path that you were on for your life's mission will be strong Cause there's no other way to live than being true to you And there's no risk that you could take that ain't worth the work you gotta do For every heart that you might break And every last mistake true 
Do the things you gotta do If you can just believe in you And your life's vision Will be true No living always make it through And find a better point of view A new perspective Will be true Christian podcast.